So everybody kind of has their idea of what heaven is going to be like. So I just want to say what Jeff's heaven would be like. Now, now let me be careful to say we're going to get to God's heaven in just a second. But I just want to entertain you for a moment, or maybe you're entertaining me. What would it be like if you came to Jeff's heaven? Number one, there's no such thing as poison ivy. Mm-hmm. I get that from a book. I can't stand that stuff. It's so bad. I think that in Jeff's heaven, seeing that I got the shaft the way I did, these nice white, you don't want me to pull these pant legs up. My skin is so bad. They're so white. I got sunburned and my kids got sunburned in Kansas when we walked to our mailbox, which was 0.15 miles away, so a 0.3 mile round trip, my kids and I both got sunburned just going to the mailbox and back. So I think in Jeff's heaven, Jeff should have, I'm not saying I have to have the best, but I want to have one of the better tans of all heaven. I just think that should be kind of my own earthly comeuppance because that just drives me nuts. I get sunburned all the stinking time, so that's just me. In Jeff's heaven, there's going to be water fountain machines, But instead of water, it's going to be sweet tea and Hawaiian fruit punch because it's Jeff's heaven. I get to choose whatever I want for Jeff's heaven. Anybody else sweet tea fans, Hawaiian fruit punch? Okay, then the rest of you are suffering, and that's okay. It might not be your idea of heaven, but it's Jeff's. uh, Revelation 18, I believe, is when it talks about the uh, the great banqueting table of heaven. Jeff's idea of the great banqueting table of heaven is going to be Chick-fil-A, Mexican, Italian, and breakfast for dinner. Those are the four options you have at Jeff's idea of heaven. And I could go on and on for funsies and say all the things that I like, but when we get to anything of the Bible, we have to be careful to not say that what, well, I just think would ever get to a place where it trumps what the Bible says. So what we're going to do today, what we started last Sunday, is a series on Revelation. Now, we're not going to get into the, the high weeds at all about all the specifics of what's going to take place. And let's be honest, that's kind of a very unfair thing to, an unfair thing to do or to expect from the Apostle John. Somebody 2,000 years ago trying to explain the end of times things of things that he's never seen in his life before. I mean, have you tried to explain to somebody else that's never used the internet trying to explain the internet to them? It's, 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 it's a hard thing to grasp. How would you explain to somebody before there's the locomotive automobile to somebody that's never experienced it before? So we have things in which that John 2,000 years ago is trying to explain however much in the future from us, but from him it was thousands of years away. And so... so a lot of these things, we're not going to get to where we say, this is going to happen, it's going to be this way, and we're not going to get into those weeds. And so what we're going to take is kind of broad brush strokes as we look at this glimpse of what we get, and that's basically what we get from John. But what we're going to do, again, it's not going to be, well, I just think. It's not going to be, well, Jeff just likes this idea. We're going to say, this is what God's word has to say about this specific matter. So Revelation 4 and 5, it says this. I was given this excerpt. We get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. It's a picture that gets larger by the minute, ending with all of creation worshiping Christ, the Redeemer. 
and we're going to look at two chapters. This is a lot that we're going to try to summarize in about 20, 25 minutes. Two chapters, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And so let's dig in the lion and the lamb unveiled. God the Father's plan for world history is advancing perfectly. It's going exactly how God had planned it. Revelation chapter 1 is kind of this introduction and John kind of knowing where he is and what's going on. Revelation 2 and 3 is those letters to the churches, to Sardis, Thyatira, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, blah, blah, blah. There's like seven churches. When we get to Revelation 4, there's this great change. And this is where we start to see the unfolding of what's going to take place in the future. So this is the Father's plan of world history advancing perfectly just how he desires it. And we got this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Before we get there, verse 1 says that John was on earth and he was taken up in the Spirit into heaven. So there's been kind of this rapture-like moment, and he has gone and he's now in heaven. He's going to see everything unfold, and it says this, day after day and night after night, they. Let me remind you of the they. When he goes up into heaven, he sees this incredible throne. That's the first thing he sees. He also sees 24 other thrones and 24 elders. Now, we don't have a a detailed list as to who these elders are, what their function is, everything that they do, what the qualifications to become one of the 24 elders are. We don't have any of that. Again, we're looking at broad strokes. We're not going to get real deep, but this is what we have. He says that he sees this glassy sea that's so beautiful as around the throne there's this this kind of radiating uh, uh, light that's emitting around the throne and he sees just all the colors of the rainbow. It is this incredible, insanely beautiful moment. And he hears this song. But before we get to the song, let me ask you, because this is kind of God's house. This is, this is his stomping grounds. This is his pad. This is his throne room. This is the first thing that you're going to experience there. But can I just ask you this? What would it be like if I were to go to your house? I've been to some of you guys' houses. What's the first thing that I would see when I go to your place? Is it some kind of Utah flag that's hanging up? Maybe the American flag. We just had a 4th of July. You still got it out front. Maybe when I go inside, it's like my house, and you got to step over a whole bunch of tiny little shoes about this big because we got little kids, and their shoes are everywhere. That is like one of the greatest, fun, annoying things of all the world. Is it not, parents? Oh, my goodness. Pick your shoes up. It feels like I say, pick up your shoes and shut the door. It's one of those two multiple times every single day. Is that my future or what? That's my future. That's what we're living in. I don't know how long it's going to last. But when, we, when I get to your house, do you got a really nice-looking mantle? Is it like the, the kitchen? Is that like the, 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 the centerpiece of your house? Maybe it's a family room. Maybe it's a couch. Maybe you got one of those nice big screen TVs or one of those that has like the projector shooting onto the wall. That's so cool. We don't have that, so that just seems really cool to me. What is the first thing that I would see going to your place? The first thing that John sees going to God's place is he sees this throne that just blows his mind. What it does is it, it reminds him, number one, he's not on earth anymore. Number two, that he, yes, is in heaven, but this is a place that is absolutely awesome. It is hard for him even to describe very eloquently, but he does his best. 
as he sees this rainbow, the colors, the radiation of all these lights, these, these creatures that have, uh, there's four of them that have six wings, the 24 elders, there's these fiery torches that go around it. All this stuff, it just rem- it reminds him that he is in the awesome presence of God. And then two, what's the first thing that's said at your house? When you have anybody that comes over, hey, come on in, take a load off. Hey, what are you drinking? Are you hungry? Make yourself at home. Have a seat. Mi casa es su casa. What's the first thing that is said at your place? The first thing that is said in heaven is this reminder. He has the visual reminder of God's awesomeness, his majesty, the bigness of God. But then he gets the verbal reminder of that. Day after day, night after night, they, this is the creatures that are singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. It is this reminder of God's awesomeness. And the word holiness by itself, when it's attributed to God, which when it's attributed to, attributed to man, it means to be set apart unto God-like things. When it is speaking of God, it is the reminder that he is different. Yes, he's set apart. He is special. He is not for common use. He's not like you. And you're not that much like him. Now, we're called to be godly. We're called to be Christ-like. But we need to understand there's not just a little bit of a difference, but he is God. And holy, holy, holy reminds us that we are not. That he is transcendent. That he is infinite in power, infinite in majesty and beauty and holiness. It says the three times repetition of the word holy. In Hebrew, the double repetition of a word adds emphasis with the rare threefold repetition designating the superlative and calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. The quality of God felt by creatures in his presence as awesomeness or fearfulness. That when you get into the presence of God, as John has, and it says he's afraid, he's fearful, he even bows down. There's a moment when he cries here in just a little bit. He's in the presence of an almighty incredible, but yet loving and kind and good God. And the first thing he sees and the first thing he hears are these reminders of you are the creation and he is the creator. And when we come into his presence, the only way that we can do that is with humility and maybe a little bit of fearfulness because you see the bigness, the incredibleness of God who was and is and always will be. He is unchanging. He is unchallenged. He is constant in who he is. So the first thing that he hears is holy, holy, holy. The second thing he hears is the song, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. It's reminding us of God's sovereignty. The first part of the song reminds us that God is awesome. The second part of the song reminds us that God gets what he wants. He is in complete control. Have you ever seen somebody that they just, they're just in complete control? Whatever they do, everyone responds to them. I got a little video that I'd like to show you to kind of remind you of what it looks like when someone's in complete control, and I've never had this situation myself. 
That doesn't work with my kids. All he does is point at them. That may have been a little long, but all he does is point. He says, you, go. And that dog responds in, in perfect obedience. That, that, I, I can't imagine that. Now, this is a complete different wavelength, but God is saying that which I've decreed, which I've ordained, which I've set in place, how I tell it to go, it's going to happen. That all of creation is going to respond to God. When the end of times comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go exactly like he tells it to go. And so Revelation chapter 4, it's this incredible reminder so we're going to look at this kind of like Re- Revelation 4 and then Revelation 5, kind of like two, two, two acts, kind of like, a, what's that, Hamilton? But this isn't going to take three hours. But uh, Hamilton, it takes so long. And so at the end of this first act, it's this beautiful reminder that God is on his throne. So let me ask you this question. To summarize this, before we get into the next part, because it really takes a kind of a big turn here. Who's on the throne in your life? Who's on the throne in your heart? Who is it that you are asking to bow down? Are you willing to bow down to God and his desire upon you? Or are you asking God, oh God, would you please do this and would you please do that? Because sometimes my prayers almost get into a direction of where I'm asking God to do what I want him to do. Instead of me humbly bowing myself before him, saying, okay, God, I don't understand it, but I'm still going to to say, whatever your will is, may it be done. Because I think there's almost like a earthly yet cosmic battle going on in my heart. So let me say this about myself. I won't project this onto you, but it's almost like there's some kind of arm wrestling match between me and God, where I'm saying, God, I still want, I still want it to be my way. I still want my way. I still want my way. Or are you going to pull a John, Revelation 4, and say, okay, I understand. You are God. I am not. You are still on your throne in heaven, and you're still on the throne right here in my heart. Where are you in that today? Revelation 4 kind of it wraps up with this beautiful point to remind us that God is God and I am not. And it takes a little bit of a tweak, or, or turn, I should say. Jesus is the key to unlocking God's agenda for world history. Now it takes a little bit of a turn as we get to Revelation chapter 5. So we understand that, that, that God has ordained and all this stuff is to take place in the past. And now Jesus is the center of what we're going to look at moving forward. And as world history gets unfolded, Revelation chapter 5, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Usually it would be wax, and put their stamp of, uh, on there, and you'd have to break it to open it. And it was sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Skipping into verse 4. Then I began to weep bitterly, because, notice this, no one was found worthy the verse that I guess we skip, verse 3 says, no one was able. It makes me think of like World's Strongest Man contest. They pick up those big giant, the giant boulders and they, they, they move this and they throw that. No one was able, but also no one was worthy. No one was worthy to open the scroll and to read it. 
But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop your crying, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now there's two big expressions that are shared in this passage that we want to highlight real quick. Oh, I got one more verse to read. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders. What happens is no one's able to open the scroll. No one's able to unseal the seals, but Jesus. And as Jesus comes forward, let me go backwards real fast because this is amazing. Right after stop weeping, it says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, the father of the faith. Isaac, his one son. Then Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12. I can't do 12. Anyways, he's got a lot of kids. He's got 12 kids. The third one is one named Judah. And he says, you shall be the one in which an heir is going to come and you shall rule. The scepter shall never leave your family. And so Judah, is the, he gets this name, this title, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So notice this. They say, look at the lion. Look at the lion. The lion's coming, and he can do it. But then the very next verse, who does John see? He sees a lamb. He doesn't see Jesus as the big scary lion. He sees Jesus as the lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. He sees Jesus the same as he saw Jesus before Jesus ascended back into heaven. As one that had his, his wrists pierced, that had a thorn of crowns shoved into his skull, that his back was, was whipped off, that he had nail piercings also into his feet. He looks up and he sees not the lion... Jesus still is the lion, but he sees Jesus, the suffering lamb that gave his life. John 1.29 is where John the Baptist yells, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus presents himself, John sees Jesus as the lamb of God. It's this incredible, incredible moment. We see that Jesus is the key to history because of his supremacy as the lion, the tribe of Judah, but also of his sacrifice, the one that sacrificed his life for yours and for mine. And by his death, he now is making a people for himself. I read those verses before that. Sorry about that. By his death, Jesus has created a global people of God if you are a Jewish person reading this book, if you're right there in that early first century, there's this big argument if Jesus could be for the Gentiles or was Jesus only for the Jews to which they would hold him for themselves. There's a group of people called the Judaizers that they would follow Paul around to wherever Paul went. They would say, oh, Paul told you some of it, but he didn't tell you everything. You have to become like us Jews. You have to do everything that we've done. You have to partake in our festivals. You have to partake in all the feasts. And you have to be like us. And they were, they were contorting, they were distorting the gospel. 
And so when John writes this letter and, and it gets sent out to so many people, it is the beautiful reminder that Jesus didn't come just for some people or a particular group of people. He came for all who would receive him. That by his death, Jesus created a global people for God. And he reminds us of that. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, verse 9. Doesn't that sound pretty similar to Philippians 2, 9 through 11? It's pretty close. Therefore God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5.13 says, Then I heard every creature in heaven... This is the one that mimics Philippians 2. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 4 is this reminder that God is on his throne and that Jesus is with him. And that when Jesus, did, when that time comes and he breaks open those seals, as history has unfolded just how God desires, the future will unfold just as God desires. And there's basically going to be two different people groups. Those that already proclaim Jesus as Lord and those that will do it after the fact. He's saying you're going to do it on this earth or you're going to all do it when you get to heaven. But there's a catch there, there's always a catch, isn't there? But there's a catch. If you didn't declare Jesus as Lord on earth, when you do it on heaven, he's still going to tell you to depart, that I'll, I never knew you. I believe it's Matthew 22. But Lord, Lord, we professed, we, we, we sent out demons, we healed the sick, we did all this in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And if I didn't know you on this earth, and whenever we all get to heaven and you bow down, as everyone bows their knee to Jesus, he's going to say, too late. You didn't know me on earth. You don't get to know me like that in heaven. That's kind of heavy-handed. That's kind of, that's kind of I, don't, I don't know, maybe some would say, well, that's unfair. Well, that's just mean. Can I remind you of Revelation 4? This is God's house. This is God's throne. When I come into your house, do I get to come in any way that I want? Do I get to do or say or behave, act? Do I get to talk to you or your spouse or your kids any way that I desire? Or are there expectations at your house? God has expectations at his house. And Revelation 4 and 5 is this reminder we don't get to heaven on our own accord. It's all through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we call it grace, because you didn't earn it. You are given forgiveness as soon as you ask for it, yes. But you don't earn your way to heaven. You don't get a stiff-arm God into heaven. Oh. So the other day, uh, whatever, uh, two, two, two nights ago, apparently Emma woke up 
at like 11.30, and I slept right through it, and Bethany went and, you know, consoled her as she had some kind of nightmare. <laughs> well, then it happened right after midnight, <laughs> and it was my turn, and I got up. I had no idea. Bethany got up, and she had no idea that I got up, kind of the same thing. Anyways, I don't know how many times this went through the night, but I did get up once, <laughs> and I did the thing that I do with my daughter every single time it happens. I did the same thing with my boys. I put my hand on their, on their side, and I said, are you okay? It's okay. Daddy's here. And I just pat her on the back or on the chest, and I just say it over and over again. It's okay. Daddy's here. You don't need to be afraid. You don't ever have to be afraid when daddy's here. And Emma, it was so cute. She kind of, she rolled from her side to her back, and I said, did you have a bad dream and she goes, yes. It was so adorable. And I said, well, you don't have to worry about that now. Why? Because daddy's here. And I did that with her, and she fell asleep like a light out of nowhere. She was gone, and she was kind of doing her little two-year-old snoring thing. It was really adorable. And I stayed in her room to make sure that she didn't start crying again in a couple minutes. We get this constant reminder from God's word over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when you come to me in the way that I require, by faith in Jesus Christ, not because you're good, not because you came to church, not because you put something in the giving box or went to that mission trip or whatever it is, the only way that you come to me is by faith. When you come to me by faith, you can know that I have something beautiful in store for you. Is life hard? Does COVID stink? Oh, yeah. It's S-U-C-K-S. It's that bad. It stinks. It's really horrible. But, hey, there's a wonderful, wonderful future. And Jesus promises, in the midst of it, I will be with you. That's the end of the Great Commission. And lo and behold, I will be with you to the ends of the age. Kind of like a dad or a mom telling their little kid, it's okay, mommy's here. It's going to be all right, daddy's here. Would you bow with me, please? The worship team's going to come up and lead us. <clears throat> We're going to close out this service in just a second. But I just want to ask anybody here, if there might be anyone here that doesn't know Jesus in that way yet, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, would you go ahead and say a prayer like this? Now, it's not about the words from Jeff. It's about whatever words come from your heart. Would you just humbly say to him, Lord, I understand I need you. Jesus, I understand I need you, and I ask for your forgiveness. I need you and I ask your forgiveness. Would you come and forgive me? Would you come and give me new life? I surrender and submit myself to you. And from this day forward, I am yours. From this day forward, I'm a follower of Christ. However it is that you need to say that in your words, would you do that right now? Now that's part of the crowd, but the rest of the crowd, I want to ask you this. Are some of you still in your own little cosmic arm wrestling match with God? 
Are some of you here still in that place of where you're still battling back and forth, your will be done or God's will be done? Would you also say a prayer that, God, I'm ready to submit, and I know that I'm a, I'm a believer and I'm a follower of yours, but, boy, sometimes I, I get in, into these battles with you. So I'm just here to say I'm surrendering to you, Jesus. I'm surrendering to you. And I'm saying from this step forward, may your will be done. Father God, that's going to be the, the, the struggle of our lives. The struggle of our lives is going to be this constant battle. Is it going to be about what I want, what Jeff desires, what, what, what I'm trying to create, what I'm trying to achieve, or am I, God, going to come to a place where I kind of like John in Revelation 4, come into the presence of the holy, almighty, beautiful, loving, and an incredible God where I humble myself before you, bowing down, saying, Lord, may your will be done. Sure, the end of times is going to unwrap exactly how you desire. But as I play my part in this, may I be a vessel that is well used by you. Because, Lord, I'm all yours. I put all my chips on the, uh, on the table. I have nothing to hide. I'm saying, Jesus, I'm all yours. And the beauty of that, God, at the same time, is you say that, that you belong to us. That, that, that you are ours. It goes both ways. And so we thank you, Lord, for your love that was demonstrated on the cross. We thank you for the love and compassion and grace that you give us each and every day. Oh, Lord, we're just so amazed by your love and grace. May that be the thing that overwhelms us each and every day. The mountains are beautiful. I love that. Coming from the Midwest, never seen mountains before. This area, the people, they're beautiful, they're great. But God, you are absolutely awesome. And we come bowing before you with that reminder that you alone are God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.